Good morning, Cedarville. Glad you're here. If you're new with us this morning, my name's Pastor Dave, and uh, we're thrilled that you've joined us for worship this morning. I want to start um, off our time together here before I jump into message and do a little family business with you guys. Uh, we are officially launching this entire month our fall vision campaign that we are calling Together. And we're calling it Together for a number of reasons, but primarily it's because the places that we believe God is leading us, where God is directing us as a church family right now, is that he's, he's bringing us together in some significant ways to to be one church to advance the kingdom of God in this world. That takes that, that idea of together is, is playing out in a number of ways. One of the ways you might notice just right off the bat is our, our middle school and high school students have joined us in big church starting today officially, and we're really happy to have them. Yeah. We did a fire alarm just to make you guys feel like it's exciting in here, right? We don't want you to feel like it's boring. It's exciting. Um, we do stuff with flashing lights. At any rate, um, so we have this Together Vision campaign going. And I just want to say, uh, I've been here one year now. I don't know if, if you realize that or not. It's gone really fast, but all of a sudden it's... A, don't, don't clap. Um, I told first hour, people clapped, and I was like, oh yeah, we made it through. Like, whoo. It's only one year down? Okay, no. Uh, but one thing I've noticed about this church since I came, and some of you have been here for a long time, and you've been here through, through great seasons and through ministry ups and downs, but from the perspective of a new pastor who's been here one year, I truly believe after being here that the Lord is working in our church in some significant ways, and he is, he's positioning us and he is posturing us to have significant kingdom impact in this city and around the world moving forward. I honestly believe it. I see it. God is at work. He is doing things here that I never would have imagined he would be doing. And so I'm, I'm really excited, but, I, but I, what I see is that God is uniquely bringing this church together, is just the word. Um, and that's really how God has worked throughout the centuries, our, our all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent, omnipotent God, uh, he can do things however he wants. He can handle stuff however he chooses, and yet he chooses to work through his people when they come together. And that's our privilege, to be the body of Christ. And so we're calling this vision campaign Together because we're moving forward to advance the kingdom uh, together. I want to say a few things about it. I'm going to transition from this idea that I believe God is going to do amazing things through this church and advance the kingdom of God and create ministries and transform lives and heal hearts and shape maybe an entire city uh, through this church. And now I want to transition that into a conversation about office space. Now, for some of you, you're going to be thinking, like, that's pretty disconnected and very anticlimactic, but I don't think that it is. And I'm going to tell you why. Uh, we are in a position where we are constructing a new office space for our staff right here on campus. And I am begging you to hear me out about this. This is not a place for staff people to have a desk and a chair. That is not what this campaign is about. That is not what this, this facilities upgrade is about. It will accomplish that certainly, but it goes far beyond that. I really believe that what we are embarking on is about the future of our congregation. 
I believe it's about where God is taking us. I believe it's about what God wants to accomplish through us. I believe it's about new levels of collaboration and communication and creativity that God wants to infuse into this congregation to change the world for the gospel. That's what I truly believe. And so we are building a space... Uh, for our staff right here on campus, a, a space that will facilitate that, uh, a space that will help our staff communicate and collaborate better with one another, a space that will invite in ministry leaders and infuse more uh, collaboration with the congregation, a space that will engage and and invite in our community, the community around us. And so we are excited about this space. I want to tell you a few things, just real practically, um, about what we're planning. A few practical reasons why I think this is, is a wonderful choice for our church. First of all, financially, it makes a ton of sense. For those of you who are just kind of like cut and dry, like give me the facts sort of folks, you're going to love this. We looked at and considered a number of ways to create office space for our staff, including just going back to our old plan. This is not only, I believe, one of the best options out there, it is also one of the cheapest it's going to cost, start to finish, about $700,000. It's a space that I believe will meet the needs for our staff, um, even when it grows for decades down the road. It brings us back on campus and enables us to have an incarnational ministry here on this campus we've been blessed to receive. It frees us from paying rent, which is just a fun, great monthly reality. Um, it designates space for volunteers and congregation members and even the community come in and use. Uh, next week, I'm going to take you through kind of a visual tour on the screens. We're going to walk through so you guys can see exactly where it is and what exactly we're planning. Today, there are some pictures in the lobby. You can check those out. But I want you to know this. We have worked really hard on this space. This is not something we've thrown together. This is not, this is not the culmination of like one or two people's efforts. A number of people have come together and worked really hard on this. And we started way back in February. Our plan has gone through numerous estimates and revisions. And um, we've been very careful with the numbers. There's some contingency dollars built in. And I mention that because I know there's some history here of building projects going a little over budget. I've heard that's happened in the past. Some of you will know what I'm referring to. And so this, this time, we cannot control everything, but we are doing our very, very best to be um, extremely responsible with the dollars that we're asking for. A couple other just practical things that I, I want to mention uh, that I think are important. We are a debt-free church. This church carries no debt at all. And that is such a gift. Um, it enables, us, it enables us to invest all of the dollars that, that we give to this place back into ministry. Um, and so we want to continue to be a debt-free church at the end of this project. Uh, it's our goal to have all $700,000 for the office space in by the end of January. We know that's an ambitious goal. And some of you may be thinking, wow, that's huge. And I say, our, my God is that big. And I really believe he will provide. So um, we also have some smaller projects in the works. They're going to go above and beyond that as money comes in. We're renovating classrooms under the chapel for our children. We're fabricating a new space for our youth up here in the Upper East Lobby. We are uh, re equipping our chapel for the ministries that meet in there, specifically our Spanish-speaking congregation that is growing by leaps and bounds. Um, we have some upgrades and renovations planned for this room and our gym, and we're going to uh, accomplish those things as money comes in. But primarily right now, we are talking about 
this new space for our staff where ministry is going to be formed and created and dreamed up. And I honestly think that there are ministry ventures and venues for this church down the road that we do not even know about yet that God will use to change the people's lives around us that will come out of that space that we will build. So um, I'm going to ask you for three things today. I'm going to ask you to be a part of this project on three levels. And so I just want to be really clear. This is me, your pastor, very humbly coming and saying, here's what I would like from you, and I'm going to give it back to you as well. So I'm a part of this with you. First of all, I'm asking you to be excited. Be excited about what God... Yeah, not to cheer, but that's cool. That's a good start, right? Um, Be excited about what God is doing in our church. Be excited about the fact that we have young families, new young families coming all the time. Be excited about the fact that our children's ministry is growing. Be excited about the fact that we are investing again in the next generation. Be excited about the fact that we want to squeeze every single drop of kingdom advancing energy we can out of this wonderful facility and campus that we've been given. Be excited that God is on the move here in our midst. So, and I'm asking that of you in an authentic way. I don't want you to to feign excitement. I don't want you to pretend to be excited. I don't want you to just be excited because I said so. If you're not excited, ask the questions you need to ask. Voice the concerns you need to voice, raise the questions and share the ideas that you need to share and get excited because God is doing something here and it is going to be fun. Do not miss it by being pouty pants. Do what you need to do to get excited. If you need to talk to me, I am available. My door is open. You can grab me after one of the services. You can get on my calendar. I would love to talk with you if you need to talk with me about anything. If you want to talk to our elders, they will be available every Sunday after both services throughout the entire month of September out in the lobby by the chalkboard. Talk to them. Ask them questions. Pick their minds. But get the information you need to get to be excited about where we're headed because God is doing good stuff. So that's the first one. Be excited. Try to be more excited than me. I challenge you. I don't think you can do it. Second, be excited and give. There's just a a practical reality of this situation and I I won't shy away from it. God is asking us to give. It's one of the ways we'll be a part of investing in moving forward here. Um, I'm not asking you of anything that Amy and I won't be a part of. We're going to be looking real carefully at our finances and figuring out how we can sacrifice and give over and above our usual tithes and offerings to invest in the future of our church and this office space and the other projects that are going to be happening. And so I want you to consider that and pray about it and talk about what you might do to give financially to this vision campaign this fall. So be excited, give, and then finally engage. We don't want you to just be here. I don't want you to just be excited. I don't want you to just give. I want you to give emotionally and physically and spiritually everything you have for this congregation. Figure out how you can be a part of what God is doing to advance his kingdom through Cedar Mill Bible Church, where you can serve, how you can connect. I mean, Matt said it, I'll say it stronger. I want every single person in this church in a community group for those eight weeks in October and November. I have three kids. I'm really busy too. Get in a group. You won't regret it. It's going to be a good thing. So engage. Use your gifts. Our children's ministry, our new children's ministry, uh, they launched today. They've been praying and they prayed for 30 new volunteers. 30 new volunteers. They got 32. I told them, 
I told them they were wimpy prayers and they should have prayed for 60. Uh, no, the point is this. There are some amazing ministries birthing and happening around here right now. Tons of places to serve. Find a place to serve. Because all the dreams that we have and all the transformation that I believe we're going to experience and all the kingdom impact that we will have the privilege of being a part of, it will only happen if we are in it together. Together as a church, together following our God. If we do that, I think there are some great things in store. So uh, we're going to talk about this every week for the next four weeks. And like I said, some different kind of slants on it. Like next week we'll have some more fun and be able to look at some pictures on the screen. But, um, but thank you for being a part of this wonderful congregation and walking in faith uh, together forward with us. Amen. I'm going to pray, then we'll get into sermon here. God, right now we do ask for your spirit to come and move us and lead us. You are the head of this church. You are on the wheel. We do it all for you and for your kingdom. So continue to lead where you want us to go, God, and we will do our best to follow. And right now, Lord, we open our hearts to you. We open our minds to your word that you might use it to challenge us and change us and shape us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and your presence with us this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I got here to church. I got here early, like 5.45 actually. It was still dark. And as I approached the church building, um, I noticed there was a guy out here on the side and he was trying to break in, a burglar here trying to break into our church. And so I confronted him and he was pretty hostile and we had a little altercation and he caught me with a left hook, which is why I have this big band-aid on my thing, just split my eyebrow right open. But because I'm a master in martial arts and know jiu-jitsu and some things... I quickly restrained him and called the cops. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, Mike? That is a lie. None of that happened, actually. I simply have this band-aid on my forehead because I walked into a door this morning. Right before the 9 o'clock service, I was coming in to preach, and I don't know what happened. I just walked into a door and split my eyebrow wide open. But this morning, we are talking about lies, and so I thought it was inappropriate to open with a lie... That was lie number one. We're in a new series this morning called Lied To. Grab a Bible, if you will, and open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis, for those of you who are new, is a real easy book to find. It is the very first book in the Bible. And if you're using a pew Bible, we are on page 3. That's pretty cool, page 3. We are three pages into the story. As you turn... Let me say that the very beginning of the Bible is important because it sets the tone for everything that comes after. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we learn who made the world and what it was supposed to be like, what God intended for this, this earth. And in chapter 3, we find out how it came to get so messed up. And then in chapter 4, we're told how incredibly messed up it is. And then from there on out, we learn about how God is working through people to reclaim and redeem and restore his creation that has been marred by sin. And so this morning, we're going to jump in on chapter 3. We're getting into the story just as things start to go downhill. Up until now, things have been going pretty good, actually very good. And um, now things will go a bit haywire. And it all begins when humanity gets lied to. 
When humanity gets deceived into believing some things that are simply not true, and friends, here's the deal, we are still, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we are still being lied to today. The Bible says that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's still looking to devour someone with his lies. Jesus says, there is no truth in him, talking about the devil. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. It's like his mother tongue. It's the language that just flows off his lips. For he is a liar, Jesus says, and the father of lies. So in this series, we're going to take a look at some of Satan's favorite tricks and tactics And we're going to do this that we might not fall victim to his lies in our lives down the road. So this is the very first one. This is the very first lie ever told. This is the blueprint, if you will, for every other lie we experience in this world from Satan. Genesis chapter 3, we're starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So right away in this story, we we meet the culprit, we meet the villain, this liar, the serpent. And the Bible uses the word to describe him crafty. It says he's crafty, and he says a crafty serpent. So right right away you can tell that Eve is probably drawn in by the really cool bead necklaces he's made for the Portland farmer's market. (laughs) It's a crafty serpent. My wife said that was the lamest joke ever and that I should not use it. And this is an example of why you should always listen to your wife, yes. Point one. No, actually the word here, crafty, means that the, this, this serpent is shrewd and cunning and clever. It's actually a, a word play. This is a play on words. And the author is referencing this word that he used back in chapter two to describe huma- humanity, describe Adam and Eve. And they are, being, they are naked. It's a real similar word. And the idea here is that while Adam and Eve were naked, while Adam and Eve were innocent of evil and deception... The serpent has a keen understanding of such things, and he's going to use his understanding of deception to his advantage in this moment. Friends, right off the bat, real simply, and this might go without saying, but it's good to be reminded of, we must understand that our enemy is crafty. He's sly, he's slick, he's subtle, he's cunning, In fact, we all know this chapter, this chapter in Genesis, as the chapter where Satan, the devil, entices humanity with evil and causes sin to enter into the world. And if you look at the top of that paragraph, there's in some bold letters, it's titled what? It's titled The Fall. This is the fall. It's about sin and evil and Satan. And yet, none of those words that we associate with these verses actually show up in the verses. And here's why. Right away in this passage, Scripture is telling us how crafty and under the radar evil actually is. I used to watch Saturday Night Live. Um, Any Saturday Night Live fans out there? Um, All old people say this, but the old ones were the best ones. So I'm officially old. Sorry, high school kids. But there was this one particular skit that I'm very fond of, and it starred Garth Brooks and Will Ferrell. And some of you know the one, right? It's just, it's the greatest. And in this sketch, Will Ferrell plays the devil and he is dressed appropriately. He's like all in red with the horns and the fork and everything. And he shows up to Garth Brooks' apartment where Garth Brooks is struggling to write country music songs. And the devil strikes up a deal with Garth and he says, Hey Garth, I will give you 
a top-of-the-charts hit song, if you will sell your soul to me for eternity. And Garth Brooks is in such despair over his lack of ability to produce a hit song that he agrees. He says, sure, let's do it. Let's do this thing. Give me a hit song, and you can have my soul for all eternity. So the devil sits down with a guitar, and all of a sudden the devil gets writer's block, and he cannot produce a hit song, so the deal's off, and it's really funny. But the point is this. In our lives, we... I believe subconsciously start to think that when the devil shows up, when he makes his entrance into our world, it's going to be really easy and obvious to spot him. I mean, because we know evil, right? And if evil were to knock on my door, I would certainly recognize it. It'll, I mean, if the devil shows up, he's certainly going to be dressed in red with horns and a pointy tail. And we'll say, no, 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 Satan. I am not falling for your schemes. But that's... Not how it goes for Eve in Genesis 3. And and it's not how it goes for us either. When the enemy comes, he comes in disguise. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That when the enemy shows up in your life, he not only doesn't look hideous, or horrendous, or evil, or horrible. He actually looks beautiful, and lovely, and sometimes even wise and holy, like an angel of light. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And and here we start to see the craftiness of the enemy. He doesn't come out and outright call God a liar, at least not right away. He asked what seems to be this very benign question. He says, let me see. Hey, Eve, let me just see if I've got this right. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Is that what God said? And you'll notice how he twists what God says here. He uses some of what God says, and he just changes a few little words. He just changes it ever so slightly. This is very much a half-truth, because the very best lies are mostly what? They're mostly true. And by asking this seemingly innocent question, Satan is suggesting something to Eve that is at the the root of what is utterly destructive to her life and to her thinking. And here's here's what Satan is suggesting to Eve. He's saying, you should really determine if God's commands are right. I mean, have you really thought about what God said? Have you really thought about if you agree with him? Have you ever really thought about if what he says is true or acceptable to you? Because Eve, you should be the one who decides. You should be the one who determines if his laws and if his boundaries and if his commands are okay or not for you. You see, what Satan starts to do in this passage and what he's been doing ever since is question the lordship of God in our lives. In fact, check this out. Every single time in the opening chapters of Genesis that God is referenced, he's always referenced with this word, Lord. He's always called Lord 
God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. Verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man. Verse 18, Lord God. Verse 19, Lord God. Verse 21 and 22, Lord God, Lord God. Chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. But now, in the very first instance, we hear the serpent reference God what does he say did the Lord God really say is that what he says no he just says did God really say in fact the word the serpent uses here for God is the most generic Hebrew word for God there is it's the word Elohim it's kind of like this God this kind of vague concept or thought friends who is God to you? Is he, is he just this generic, bland, sort of out there God that you, that you believe in, but who has no lordship or authority in your life? Is he just God or is he Lord God? Does he have ultimate authority over what you do, what you think, what you say, how you live? You see, right away in the story, Satan wants to plant this idea in Eve's mind that maybe she should have ultimate authority in her own life. Maybe she's the one who should be Lord of her life. The other thing we see in this verse, another layer to Satan's scheme here, this one's often overlooked, is that the serpent comes to Eve when she's by herself. Adam's not around, we don't know where he is, but for the entire last chapter, we've been told about how Adam and Eve were created for this perfect union and partnership and how God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for you to be alone and togetherness is better than aloneness and so they're so happy now that they have one another. But now all of a sudden, in chapter 3, Eve's alone and Satan grabs a hold of this opportunity. Friends, you know this. The enemy loves to isolate his victims. He loves to get us alone. He loves to remove us from the counsel and community of others. And that is exactly when he strikes. I was watching this documentary recently. It's my new thing. I, I've discovered that there are endless documentaries on Netflix. And once you discover that, you'll get sucked in and your marriage will start to suffer. Please don't talk to my wife about this. But I was watching this documentary on Netflix recently. And um, it was about wolves. Do you know, like, we almost completely obliterated wolves from our entire country? But now they're back, and there are several packs of wolves that are living over in northern Idaho, and there's a whole documentary on these wolf packs and how they're doing and how they live and their hunting habits and all this. And I was getting sucked into this documentary, and you're really cheering for the wolves. They set you up in this documentary. You're like, I love the wolves. Let's do it. Yeah. More wolves, more wolves. And then all of a sudden, they like single out and corner this antelope. And I was like, oh no, the antelope. <laughs> you know, I feel so sorry for her. Her And what you learn about the wolves real quickly is that they won't attack an entire pack of antelope. They'll only attack 
when they're able to get one sort of peeled off from the rest of the group and they'll attack her in isolation. And so at this point of the story, they've got this one little antelope who's kind of hobbling around, has a little bit of an injured leg, and she's peeled off from the group and now they've kind of moved her away from the pack and she's up on this mountain ridge and the wolves are coming up. There's like eight of them and they're surrounding her and it's like, oh, it's all over. It's curtains for this antelope. And you're like really sad and you can hardly look. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this other antelope, this other like girlfriend antelope comes cruising in right in the middle of the wolf pack and like stands there right next like to her antelope sister. And you're thinking to yourself, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen anyone do. <laughs> because there's eight of them, you're going down. But it's not, ha- it's not what happens at all. With only two antelope, the wolf pack backs off. When there was only one, they were ready to pounce. But now that there's two, they decide, like they, they have a second thought and they back away and the two antelope get back to the pack and everyone's okay. It's just this amazing thing. See, the wolves really want you to get off by yourself. So does Satan. So let me ask you today, friends, are you off by yourself? Are you isolated? Are you pondering big life questions on your own? Are you making decisions on your own? Are you wrestling with temptations on your own? Because that is exactly what the enemy wants you to do. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, real quickly, let's just go back and find out exactly what God said when he gave this command. It's back in chapter 2. God gives the original command about the tree. This is what it says. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's the command. That's what God says. That's the the totality of of his statement there. Notice, he never says anything prohibiting them from touching it. And so right here in Genesis chapter 3, we have our very first biblical example of legalism. I'm serious. This is it. This is where like, it all starts. And what legalism does is it takes God's laws and it makes them more restricting, more prohibit- prohibitive than they were intended to be. And legalism is a real tricky thing because No one becomes a legalist thinking, I think I'll become a legalist. People who are legalists have really good intentions, actually. Legalism always, at the outset, sounds really good. It seems really practical. I mean, think about this for a minute. If there was some fruit in your home, in a bowl, in the center of your house, and you knew that if your kids ate it, they would certainly die, wouldn't you say, hey, new rule, Not only are you not allowed to eat the fruit, don't go anywhere near the fruit, don't touch the fruit, this entire room is off limits. Now wouldn't you do that? Some of you wouldn't. I'm worried about your parenting skills. I would. I would do this. And because it just seems like common sense. Just to say, you know, let's just not touch it at all. But let me tell you what legalism does. Let me tell you what happens when we, when we begin to add rules and extra layers to God's commands. You see, at the heart of this command that God gives to Adam and Eve is really God's desire for them to choose him and to trust him and to rely on him for everything that they have. You see, every time they choose to not eat from that tree, what they're saying is, all my nourishment, 
All my sustenance, everything we need for life and satisfaction and fulfillment is from God. And by not eating this fruit, we are affirming our belief and trust in Him. But then the extra layers get added. Then the extra rules come. And when extra restrictions start to get added, all of a sudden, God's commands begin to feel overly restricting, narrow, and just like insignificant rules. And the original intent of God's law starts to get lost. People start to forget, like, why is this rule in place anyway? It's just starting to feel kind of pointless or insignificant. And that's what's happening to Eve here. She's getting away from remembering and understanding the heart of why God put this command in place to begin with. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, now the stage has been set. Now the foundation has been laid. And in this moment, Satan moves to set the hook and offer the very heart of the lie that he longs for Eve and Adam and every single human being on earth to believe. And that's this. God is holding out on you. He's not giving you the full truth. He says that his ways are what will bring you joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment and everlasting life and abundance. But the truth is this. There's more out there for you. There's a better way. You will be missing out on life if you don't at least experiment with going outside of God's boundaries. God's not giving you the full truth. You cannot put your full trust in him. So call your own shots. Be your own God. See, at the very center of what God longs for you and me is this, that we put our faith in Him. That's what God wants from you more than anything else. Faith in Him. Trust in Him. Reliance on Him. Dependence on Him in every single area of your life. That's a theme that runs all throughout Scripture from the very beginning all the way to the very end. Will you trust God with everything that you are? I would argue that might be the core message of the Scriptures. We put our faith, hope, complete trust in God. So of course, of course, Satan wants to attack the very thing that God wants for us most of all. He wants to undermine it. Of course, the enemy wants to tell you and me that we can't trust God and that his way is not really the best way. So that's what he does here. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Again, friends, there's so much to talk about in these verses and we will certainly come back to these um, time and time again. But the reason this passage is so powerful is that it's not only a commentary on what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. It certainly tells us that. But it's also a commentary about us. About our life and our world and how our enemy works and about the lies that he wants you and I to believe. It's about the devastating impact of those lives in our lives. Those lies in our lives. Say that five times fast. You see, after Eve has been convinced that God can't be trusted, 
If God can't be trusted, well then who does she trust? What does she put her faith in now? What does she put her faith in? It says right there. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Instead of trusting God, Eve decides to trust herself. She decides to trust her own desires, her own thinking, her own instincts, her own senses. God can no longer be fully trusted to determine what's best for me, so I will trust myself. That sounds pretty reliable. That sounds pretty safe. That's pretty close to home, isn't it? Well, do this to, do this for me, friends. We're going to do a group exercise right now. This is an out loud participating event. And high school kids, we always do these. So full participation from over here. Here's what I want you to do. Just as soon as I say it, okay? Do this with me. We're all together going to spell the word silk. Ready? S-I-L-K. What do cows drink? Milk. Someone over here got it. Good job. Most of you... Most of you just said that cows drink milk. And I guess we kind of do occasionally when they're like baby calves and stuff. But what do cows really drink? Let's all say it together. They drink water. Here's the point. I'm not really that smart. Especially compared to Satan, the father of lies. And it only took me about five seconds to fool you. How do you think he'll do? You see, here's the problem with Satan's logic. My desires and my thinking and my instincts and my senses aren't always right. They don't always lead me down the right path. In fact, they are quite often very wrong. I'll give you some examples. These are just personal examples for me. Sometimes, for me, it just feels really good to gossip. Just when gossip just comes off my lips, it just, oh yeah, it feels great. All my instincts, all my emotions are saying, yeah, that feels right. Ever happen to you? Sometimes it seems that getting angry and losing my temper will just help me blow off some steam and it's just the right thing to do. Or what about revenge? When someone wrongs me or my wife or one of my kids, nothing feels more right in one of those moments than to seek revenge. Friends, how many families have been destroyed? How many affairs? How many sexual indiscrepancies? How many of those things have been justified because they just felt right? Then there are more subtle things like judgment or self-righteousness or greed. And don't those sometimes feel so good? Do you see how Satan works? Don't trust God. Trust yourself. You are trustworthy. Friends, you've got to know this. You're not trustworthy. I'm not trustworthy. Your thoughts aren't trustworthy. Your feelings aren't trustworthy. And here's one of my favorites. Your conscience is not trustworthy. You have programmed your own conscience. Your society, your culture, your family has programmed your conscience. It is not foolproof. And then another reality. Almost instantly we see that Eve's deception is not isolated. It's not an isolated instant instance. What happens as soon as she's deceived? Who gets sucked in? Adam, her husband, gets sucked in. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. 
And again, friends, this passage, there's a lot of things to be said here and some fun jokes, but this passage isn't about whose fault it is that sin entered the world, clearly the lady's fault, but <laughs> it's not about that. It's about this truth, and this one's significant, this one's huge. High school kids, hear me on this one. You cannot buy into the lies of Satan without it negatively impacting the people around you. You cannot buy into the lies of Satan without it negatively impacting and spilling out onto the people around you. You see, as much as we are told in this world that we are individuals, that we live these self-contained lives, it is not true. Every single decision you make, every single lie you buy into will have impact on the people around you, especially those closest to you. The choices you make and the lies that you believe will have impact on them. Students, what you choose to believe and the decisions you make will impact your parents, will impact your siblings, will impact your future spouse. You okay being lied to? Adults, the life you live, the choices you make, they are not quarantined from your neighbors and co-workers and friends. Our lives are interconnected. And when we believe the lives of Satan, other people get hurt as well. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You know what I wonder? It's not really in the scriptures, but I wonder this. I wonder if it was good. I wonder if Adam and Eve sat for a while and just ate this fruit and thought, man, the serpent was right. Because you know how sin works, right? It doesn't always bite you right away. Sometimes it feels really good when you buy one of Satan's lies and you just, it just feels good for a while sometimes. I wonder if it was good here for a while. You know, We're not dead. This stuff is great. It's so tasty. I feel so liberated from God's restricting rules. I wonder if there was a, just a season or a time period of that. And we just kind of picture this fruit as apples. Right? That's kind of how it's be pictured over the years. Well, I was at a party yesterday and they had fresh fruit out. And I have to tell you, I'm rethinking that. It certainly had to be mango. Because I had some mango yesterday. And I'm like, this is, this is what it was. It was mango. It doesn't really matter. The point is, we do not know how long it took for sin to catch up to them. But we do know this. It did. And all of a sudden, the reality of how Genesis chapter 2 ended is now destroyed. Because at the end of Genesis chapter 2, this is what we're told, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They lived in a complete shame-free world. But now, because they've believed the eyes of the enemy, shame has come flooding in. And I've been thinking this week about all the emotions that came along with that shame. I wonder how they felt as they began to realize that because they bought this lie, everything had changed. As they started to realize all that had been destroyed because of their choice. Embarrassment? Did they feel embarrassment for the very first time? Regret? You know, I think regret is probably one of the worst emotions a person can feel. I wonder how much regret was just being heaped on Adam and Eve. Fear, betrayal, insecurity. All these new emotions, the result of believing a lie of the enemy. Then to cover up the shame, to cover up their nakedness, for the very first time in scripture, an animal needs to be killed. 
skins of that animal used to clothe them. And you see here an indication right from the very beginning of the Bible that for our sin and shame to be covered and atoned for and forgiven, the sacrifice of an innocent one would be required. Let me fast forward to the New Testament, and that's why Jesus came. The Bible tells us that he was perfect, that he was without sin, that he faced the same temptations, the same lies, the very same deceiver that Adam and Eve and we do. But unlike Adam and Eve, who actually faced their sin under the perfect conditions, the Garden of Eden, where there was no sin nature yet in them, where there was beauty and plenty and the presence of God, They were set up for success. They were set up for victory. And yet they failed. Jesus has an opposite experience. He faces his tempter in the cruel, taxing environment of the desert where he's been fasting for 40 days and he's weak and physically exhausted. But where they failed, where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus was victorious. He rejected the lies of the enemy. He never doubted the word of the Lord. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he trusted that there is no better way to live life in this world than the way his Father says to. And so this morning we might ask this. What then is the way that we overcome Satan and reject the lies of the enemy and find forgiveness for the times that we haven't? And our answer, I believe, again, is found at the table. And remember Jesus' body broken and his blood shed so that we can not only be forgiven for the lies we've believed, but so that we can find grace and power to reject the lies that will be pitched to us in the future. Friends, let me ask you this. Maybe this morning there's a place a place in your life, a relationship, an area in your reality where Satan is working his lies on you. He's working his craftiness and he's trying to lure you in. Maybe it's a lie he's just starting to sow, that you're just starting to ponder and consider and maybe perhaps believe. Maybe it's a lie that you've been buying for a really long time. But somewhere in your life, I promise you, the enemy, the deceiver, the father of lies is trying to derail you with one of his untruths. Do you know where that is today? Do you see it? Do you hear it? Are you aware of it? Well, friends, this morning as you come to the table, I want to ask that you would let this bread and this cup be a declaration to him, be a declaration to our enemy. That as we receive this holy meal together, that we would be saying, God is my Lord. His way is the way I choose. He is not holding out on me and I will trust the one and only living God of this world and that is not me. Do you need to say that to the enemy today? Do you need to say that about a specific area of your life? About a specific lie he's telling you? I'm going to give you some time this morning. Just some time to sit and reflect on that. To reconnect with God. To remember who he is and what he's done. And then when you're ready... Come to the table, take the bread and the cup, carry it back to your seat, and then in a few minutes, uh, we're going to stand and we're going to receive that together, the Lord's Supper. And we're going to declare together as one church, God is our Lord, and we will not put up with Satan's lies any longer. Father, thank you for 
The fact that you didn't give up in the garden. That you didn't just wash your hands of it. That you didn't just wash your hands of us. That you come back to us time and time again with opportunity after opportunity to believe you and trust you and not go the way of the evil one. Friends, some in this room are thinking about a lie that they've been believing for a really long time and they've believed it over and over and over again. And God, maybe they are tempted to believe that there is no forgiveness, there is no way out. I ask God that by your grace and power and mercy, you crush that thought in their brain today. That you remind every single person in here that there is nothing bigger or more powerful than the cross of your son. Be our Lord today. Help us to see clearly the places where we're being deceived that we might more faithfully live for you. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.